Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. It's going to be lecture number 47 in immunoepigenetics, and today is 18 March 2023. We're going to do a fair amount of intermediary biochemistry today. So, for those of you who enjoy that, you're in for a treat. Of course, yours truly very much enjoys it. <laughs> so, let's talk about cancer cells. Cancer cells, of course, you know utilize the Barberg glycolytic pathway to generate ATP. That is a relatively inefficient source of net ATP synthesis. But as I've mentioned to you multiple times, there's a high level of glucose uptake in cancer cells because of GLUT1 induction. And GLUT1 will bring in glucose sufficiently to be able to keep ATP at a high enough level to drive basically cell division. Remember that these cancer cells are rapidly proliferating. They're dividing. So yes, they need bioenergetics, but they also need intermediates to carry out cell division. And what would they need? Lipids to make new membranes. So that means you're going to have to have cholesterologenesis, fatty acid synthesis, lipid complex, glycerolipid and sphingolipid biosynthesis de novo. You're also going to need an active protein synthesis uh, coordination and also, finally, nucleic acid synthesis, because you're going to have to replicate the genome, and you're going to have to do a fair amount of transcription. So that means a lot of RNA and DNA. And that means you're going to need nucleotides. All of that bioenergetics also has to be reinforced with what's known as reductive biosynthesis, which you know what that means. You're going to require NADPH. So a lot of this lecture will be about that whole NADPH induction. So let's get to uh, the heart of this. NERF2, remember that transcription factor that we've been talking about. When it's in the nucleus, it will induce the expression of several glycolytic enzymes, such as hexokinase, glucose phosphate isomerase, and both PFK1 and PFK2. Aldolase, enolase, and pyruvate kinase. So basically, most of the enzymes in the glycolytic pathway. Now, that initial uptake of glucose via the GLUT1 into the cancer cell, converting it to glucose 6-phosphate, that G6P can then enter the oxidative pentose phosphate shed, also known as the pentose phosphate pathway. <clears throat> depending on when you went to uh, college and took your first biochemistry course, it was either known as the OPP or the PPP. At any rate, what happens there is it meets up with two dehydrogenases, the glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase and the phosphogluconate dehydrogenase. Uh, those are the first two reactions in the OPP pathway. It's going to, both of those are going to generate one uh, molecule of NADPH which is going to be used for reductive biosynthesis. Not only does NERF2 induce the expression of all the proteins I just told you about, but also many more of the OPB pathways, such as transaldolase and transketolase. In terms of nucleic acid biosynthesis, the phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate, amidotransferase, and the methylene tetrahydrofolate dehydrogenase 2 enzymes will also be uh, 
taken from DNA to RNA to polypeptide, right? So you're going to get transcription, translation, post-translational modification of all those enzymes supporting nucleic acid biosynthesis. So glucose 6-phosphate can also be converted to glucose 1-phosphate by the phosphoglucomutase. And so that can generate some glycogen metabolism, which does occur in rapidly dividing cancer cells. That means that even though ATP production from glycolysis being relatively low compared to fatty acid oxidation, 38 ATP versus 2 net, right? There is an ample amount of glucose uptake in tumor cells that it can, they can actually store some glycogen. So not only are they dependent on that glucose uptake, these cancer cells, but they have as a reservoir glycogen. So that means as long as there is a available glucose, you can run cell division in a cancer cell without any problem with fatty acid beta oxidation. Now, when I say problem, that has not so much to do with the availability of fatty acids. It has more to do with the slow rate of uptake, movement from the cytoplasm into the mitochondria, the full beta oxidation, and then what you end up with, yes, is a lot of an NDH and a lot of FADH2, which can be reoxidized in the oxidative transport, um, uh, electron transport chain oxidative phosphorylation pathway to make ATP. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And you have ample amounts of oxygen in, uh, in these tumors. But the problem is <clears throat> that all that bulk movement of lipid requires that the fatty acid is either sterified to a lipid or coenzyme A intermediates. And you know the coenzyme A intermediates do not cross membranes because of their critical micellar concentration issue. <clears throat> so that means that the process is slower. And if there's anything about cancer cells that you uh, probably know just innately, cancer cells do nothing on a slow pace. The rapid, at least when they're rapidly dividing and they're getting a rapid progression of the cancer. Okay. So that's the idea about having glycogen there available. I want to make sure I made that clear to you. Now, you know that classically, when we talk about glycogen synthesis, it's going to occur in two major organ systems the liver and skeletal muscle. Um, as it turns out, if you have a conditional NERF2 activation in the liver, it will increase glycogen storage. But the skeletal muscle specific, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> keep one knockout demonstrated that you get decreased glycogen content in skeletal muscle. So uh, it looks like NERF2 does play a role in those two solid organ systems, uh, minus any kind of pathophysiology. Excuse me for coughing. I still have a head cold. <coughs> now, 3-phosphoglycerate, of course, can be diverted into the serine synthesis pathway, and serine will be used for cysteine and glycine synthesis via the folic acid pathway. That's all one carbon pathway. And then linking that to the methionine pathway and transsulfuration, that's going to support both protein synthesis and nucleic acid synthesis simultaneously. 
<coughs> the genes encoding the enzymes have one carbon metabolism, such as the uh, uh, folic acid dehydrogenases are all going to be activated by NERF2. So once again, you understand what the cell is set up to do, what a tumor cell is set up to do, is to drive membrane liposynthesis, enough ATP to, to be able to catalyze all the reactions necessary for those anabolic pathways, and plus a lot of NADPH for reductive biosynthesis, and of course, nucleotide um, biosynthesis. So NERF2 also promotes a very interesting enzyme called the malic enzyme. Let me remind you of that. Malic enzyme, there is three different isoforms of it. The one in the cytoplasm will convert malate to carbon dioxide and pyruvate via the reduction of NADP to NADPH. Okay? So, NERF2 will also induce malic enzyme in the cytoplasm because that is another source of NADPH. Now, that product of that reaction, <clears throat> pyruvate, can then enter into lactic acid synthesis, or some of it actually can also enter into the mitochondrion. And you know, when it enters into the mitochondrion, pyruvate can be converted to acetyl-CoA and acetic acid. And parts of the TCA cycle do operate, of course, in cancer cells. So there is always the potential to drive citric acid synthesis, but citric acid can leave the mitochondrion if there's adequate amounts of NADH available there. And there would be, because of all the transamination reactions going on, such as the utilization of glutamine and glutamate, uh, which is a major component of um, tumor uh, aerobic glycolysis amino acid oxidation and metabolism. So because of that, you can make a lot of citrate. It will leave the mitochondrion, and citrate will be converted to isocitrate in the cytoplasm, but also, of course, to acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetic acid. Now, that will generate two new pathways. Once citrate leaves the mitochondrion, you will go through to be straight lyse. If citrate is converted to isocitrate, you made more NADPH. That's the enzyme isocitrate dehydrogenase. Um, that's the NADP-dependent cytosolic form, isoform 1. So that once that isocitrate is made in the cytoplasm, you converted to alpha-ketoglutarate, and the alpha-ketoglutarate can be in transamination coordination with the glutamine glutamate pathways. So with that in mind, you can run then alpha-KG directly back into via monocarboxylic acid transporter, the mitochondria, and that alpha-ketoglutarate converted to succinate to malate. And you're back into making oxaloacetic acid via malate dehydrogenase to make citrate to drive that whole system over again. But the acetyl-CoA made from ACP citrate, ATP citrate lyase, which also can be the result of utilizing citrate in the cytoplasm of the tumor cell, that acetyl-CoA will be converted to malonyl-CoA via acetyl-carboxylase. And you know, then you're on your way for fatty acid synthesis and also on your way to make cholesterol, the two important 
basic membrane lipids that are necessary for cell division. Okay, so that kind of puts together our NERF2 functions uh, very effectively. Now let's, uh, to, to generate new cell division, let's talk about malic enzyme. Again, it's one of my favorite enzymes. I like all the oddball enzymes like this, maybe because I'm a little bit strange. All biochemists are a little bit strange after all. What's malic enzyme? It's okay. It was first discovered way back in 1996. At least that's when it was uh, fully described at the biochemical level. It had been known as an enzyme probably even into the 70s and 80s, but hadn't been purified. <clears throat> so <laughs> they purified a cytosolic protein back in 96, and they showed that it will convert uh, malic to birubate. And concomitantly, it would make NADPH from NADP. And that argument then uh, was immediately inserted even in this uh, uh, Biochem Biophys Research Communications paper back in 96. Don't worry, it'll be in the show notes. <coughs> as being necessary for promoting and enhancing fatty acid and cholesterologenesis because of that production of NADPH, the reducing power. So it was also determined way back in that year that malic enzyme 1 was an insulin-regulated gene. Where? In the liver and in the adipose. And in fact, it was well described as a target of <coughs> hormone control. So it was a transcriptionally regulated expression via thyroxin. Now, you know that thyroid hormone administration directly accelerates many different anabolic and bioenergetic transcriptional patterns. One of them is malic enzyme gene expression. And we see this in the neonatal brain. So triodothyronine has a direct function on the expression of malic enzyme, both in the neonatal brain, but also in the adult brain. Now, the liver triodothyroidine does induce uh, malic enzyme transcription, and that's why hypothyroidism results in a deficiency of that enzyme. Okay. Now, those are all the normal physiological responses for malic enzyme. Understand, because we're talking about cancer here, the malic enzyme has also been accused of and identified as a proto-oncogene, particularly in epithelial cancers. Now, here's the interesting case. In tumor cells, the reduction of malic enzyme 1 gene expression or the inhibition of its activity by using small uh, chemistry to be able to inhibit it somewhat specifically results in decreases of proliferation and also epithelial to mesenchymal transition, which of course, you know, is leading to the dedifferentiation of cells to be able to become tumor cells in a tumorigenic environment. Not only that, um, the inhibition of um, malic enzyme activity or gene expression will also decrease cellular migration, that is metastasis. And conversely, the promotion of oxidative stress 
apoptosis and cellular senescence when you have a deficiency of malic enzyme. Okay, so now you understand why it's an extremely important enzyme in regulating normal physiology and the pathophysiology found in many of these cancers. <clears throat> now, I want to back this up a little bit and explain to you what you should know. There are mutational and uh, at the DNA level or epigenetic controls over oncogenic gene expression. So the mutational aspects are things that we all we talk about in general genetics, <clears throat> point mutations, translocations, gene amplifications, gene deletions. Those are recurrently observed. But the epigenetic alteration of gene expression has now come into vogue. More and more uh, research has been keying in on methylation, acetylation patterns, and control over otherwise non-mutated, but still now proto-oncogenic expression of certain intermediary metabolic genes, such as ME. Now, you already know the cancer cells alter metabolism. We've been talking about this. And so the idea has been to target the reprogramming aspect of cancer cells by pharmaceuticals. Now, when you characterize cancer metabolism, often you hear about at least some element of bioenergetics. First of all, you know about glycolytic pathway, the Varberg effect. You know about glycolysis sending glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate and 3-carbon intermediates into the oxyapentose phosphate shunt. We've already talked about the malate aspartate shuttle being involved in this by moving around reducing equivalence, that is NADH at that point. And that, of course, is going to induce an involvement in the TCA cycle. And so you're going to have both NADH and an ADPH involved, right? Because those are going to center around those two basic themes in, uh, in intermediary metabolism. Now, NADPH, of course, I've told you this many times, I'm just reinforcing it. It functions, that metabolite functions as the reducing agent in cells. And it has an absolutely uh, necessary role in the production of polypeptides, lipids, and the macromolecular structures for uh, inheritance, DNA and RNA. Not only that, NADPH is involved in redox homeostasis. It's not the redox coupler like NAD, NADH is, or FAD, FADH2 is, but it still plays a role because that reducing equivalent is uh, can be converted to those other two nucleotides I just brought up, the non-phosphorylated ones. Now, okay, NADPH, as we've said, produced by glucose phosphate dehydrogenase and 6-phosphogluconate dehydrogenase and by malic enzyme, but also by <coughs> a specific IDH. And we talked about this, I would say, about three months ago, that IDH, also known as isocitrate dehydrogenase. I did mention just about five minutes ago, too, but I didn't let you know much detail more, but uh, that particular IDH also is an NADP requiring enzyme. Now, not only that, you can also get some NADPH metabolism going in the tetrahydrofolate oxidation pathways. That's correct. 
Now, all of those energy pH producing enzymes have been looked at as potential <coughs> pharmacotherapeutic targets in cancer. Now, I asked the question whether or not that is a sound idea. Remember when I'm talking about sound versus valid, you have premises and a logical argument. And as long as the, uh, the conclusion follows the premises, it's a valid argument, but it's not a sound argument unless the premises themselves are true. Then following and requiring the conclusion from the true and now validated premises to the conclusion, that argument, logical argument, is also sound. So when I say, is that idea sound, that's what I'm getting at. Is it logical? I would argue <coughs> that going after all these intermediate, um, intermediary metabolic enzymatic pathways by using very fine chemistry and or uh, monoclonal antibodies or shunting immune system alteration of some of this metabolic grid into and out of tumor environments will lead to more complications than it will to resolutions. Because these enzymes play very complex roles in maintaining normal physiological homeostasis. And yes, there is an abundance, an overabundance of some of these enzymes and tumors. And sometimes there's an uh, underexpression of other uh, genes in tumors. And we've, we've been able to show in cell culture, <coughs> or sometimes even in animal models, knockout mice, singular double knockouts, that yeah, if we go after something like malic enzyme, maybe we do see a reduction, just like I was mentioning to you. Uh, in tumor growth or in metastasis. But when you put that into um, clinical studies, what you find often when you go after, you target something like a malic enzyme, even one specific isoform. I told you there are three isoforms of it. Um, what you find is a great deal of, um, let's say, non-purposed uh, extra biochemical effects. Non-purpose means you were not trying to have an effect on, let's say, fatty acid metabolism, but you nevertheless did alter fatty acid metabolism. This can lead to complications as a pharmacotherapeutic because then you're introducing an agent that can corrupt an otherwise normally functioning pathway in cells that are not being involved in the initial or even the metastatic phases of a cancer. And that includes all the discussions of targeting and, you know, individually isolating and sending uh, fine, fine, small chemicals into tumors. You nevertheless are going to have an effect on overall enzymatic machinery, and this can cause further problems. This is why I say I don't think that's a particularly sound idea. Now, these malic enzymes, just them, <coughs> they regulate cellular energy, redox balance, and <coughs> excuse me, uh, the synthesis of macromolecules, okay? In mammalian cells, you have three forms of malic enzymes. There's a cytosolic NADP-dependent isoform 1. <coughs> excuse me, wow. The ME1. Then there's a mitochondrial NAD-dependent isoform. That's right. 
So it won't make NADH, but it's still decarboxylating. <coughs> then there is a mitochondrial NADP4. That's ME3. Sorry about all this coughing, but I can't help it. Um, okay. <coughs> so, different from the mitochondrial ME2 and ME3, the cytosolic malic enzyme 1 produces NADPH strictly in the cytoplasm. And that NADPH is high enough that it competes with the NADPH that's generated in the oxidative phosphate shunt. So as it turns out, the malic enzyme cytosolic, as ME1, plays an essential role for NADPH production. Not only in tumor cells, but yes, indeed, in tumor cells. Okay, so it's been argued that ME1, that isoform malic enzyme, NADP dependent, remember, <coughs> could be a potential target, could be a potential target for pharmacotherapeutics. Okay, sorry about that phone call. All right, now, so let's move on. Let me mention something about metabolic cycling in the control of glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. Now, this is, I have to bring this up because you have to understand the overall process. And that's what I'm going to do for you right now, okay? So, let me get to this page. Okay, I can't believe all of a sudden, in the middle of my lecture, I got phone calls. Never got a phone call, and now I'm getting them. It's not because people don't call me. It's because my phone often doesn't work where I live. Okay, so I've got about four minutes left. So that's checking time now. While I was mentioning to you about my phone. Okay, we're, again, metabolic cycling in the control of glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. This comes from a paper published years ago in the American Journal of Physiology and Endocrinology and Metabolism. That would be in 2008. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Now, glucokinase, the enzyme that we've been talking about, the NERF2, is present in hepatocytes and in the pancreas. You find glucokinase, remember that's a unique form of the hexokinase, in the liver and in beta cells. And you know that glucokinase is a higher KM and also a, which means lower binding affinity for glucose, but also a higher Vmax, which means increased velocity or increased capacity for the reaction coefficients. <coughs> so with the base cell, glucose is taken up. Glucokinase converts glucose to glucose 6-phosphate. It's carried through the glycolytic pathway to triose phosphates and then onward to pyruvate. And you know that some ATP is made that will increase the level of ATP to ADP ratios. So let me explain what happens then. Triose phosphates are going to increase the level of glycerol phosphates. Glycerol phosphates are going to be utilized in the mitochondrion ultimately to generate electrons because you're making NADH cytoplasmically. So the glyceraldehyde 3 phosphate dehydrogenase enzyme glycolytic will send reducing equivalents into the mitochondrion. 
The pyruvate, of course, is generated from the um, uh, last the last reaction, you know, pyruvate kinase from glycolytic pathway will be either decarboxylated, decarboxylated acetyl-CoA or carboxylated to OAA, driving the TCA cycle. So you're going to get ATP synthesized there as well. Now, that pyruvate that's made can move back through the malic enzyme pathway, the way I'm going to describe to you in a minute. In fact, we'll be using malate to generate pyruvate to keep this flux of pyruvate moving through the mitochondria and the beta cell. What this will promote with all this ATP coming from glycolysis and coming from the TCA cycle in the beta cell is, it, again, it'll increase the concentration of ATP to ADP ratios. And then what it's going to do is have a positive effect on mobilizing potassium out of the beta cell, and that will induce mobilization of calcium into the beta cell. That last step, the mobilization of calcium into the beta cell, will be one of the major metabolic events necessary for finally insulin secretion. So we're almost out of time. Um, I didn't get a chance yet to tell you how that fascinating little aspect will uh, involve the malic enzyme, but I alluded to it. So think about intermediates in the TCA cycle leading ultimately to malic acid. Think about malic acid ending up We'll explain how malic acid ends up into the cytoplasm, conversion to pyruvate, then running pyruvate back through the mitochondria. All of this is going to be involved in driving insulin secretion. Okay, So that's why we're interested in this paper published back in 2008, because we're going to link this to the cancer papers, which is uh, 